Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. So um, we are now going to be moving into focusing on left heart disease in pulmonary hypertension. Okay, so we're first just going to start off with looking at the diagnostic approach of HFPEF um, through a case review. Okay, so starting off, we have a 58-year-old female who has a past medical history of prior PE and DVT, sleep apnea treated with CPAP, obesity, hypertension, and then this reported history of lupus, though we note that the patient's stable off of medical therapy, and actually all serologies were negative when we get further collateral information from their rheumatologist. So the patient was diagnosed with quote-unquote pulmonary hypertension, um, but this was based on an echocardiogram alone. And we've heard a lot today about how really right heart cath is the gold standard and must be performed to really confirm the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension and also understand what's the primary underlying pathophysiologic mechanism so we can appropriately characterize and treat our patients. We note on the ECHO report, um, we don't have images yet, that there is normal LV, RV size and function, and then there's an estimated PASP of 71 millimeters of mercury. So based on this information alone, this patient is treated, um, or started on treatment with sildenafil, and this is back in 2019. Um, a few months later, the patient undergoes at the same institution a right heart catheterization. We don't have any waveform sent to us, but per report, there's a mean PA pressure of six, or sorry, a PA pressure of 64 over 16 with a mean of 37, a wedge pressure of 15. But then the report notes that the LVEDP is 26 with an index and output that are normal at 2.9 and 6.4. So taking a second to pause here, so per these reported hemodynamics, we've confirmed pulmonary hypertension, but haven't really understood whether this is a pre-capillary or post-capillary patient with conflicting information based on the reported wedge pressure versus the LVEDP. Now, fast forward, so it's been about a year and a half, almost two years. This patient continues on sildenafil. It's now March 2021, and she's presenting to our clinic for a second opinion on her diagnosis and management of pulmonary hypertension. She notes that she has persistent dyspnea on exertion, um, has not felt really any symptomatic improvement after being started on sildenafil. In terms of her exam, you note that her BMI is 39, her JVP is six centimeters of water, which is normal, negative HJR, normal S1S2, no lower extremity edema. And then for her EKG, we see that she's sinus rhythm. We notably see the absence of any changes significant with right ventricular hypertrophy, right atrial enlargement, right axis deviations, just sinus rhythm. And then moving on to her echo, first starting with the left-hand side with the apical four-chamber view. As has been um, you know, alluded to in prior talks throughout the day, the echo is a very, very important screening tool in our patients with pulmonary hypertension, gives us a wealth of information. So what we see here is normal RV size and function. Um, it's a nice normal crescent shape to the RV, just eyeballing the base to apex ratio. This is less than one, which is normal. The right atrium appears normal in size. 
Um, we can also look at the base to apex ratio. The RV should be a normal sort of crescent-shaped size. So really, based on, at least on this image, we don't see evidence of significant precapillary disease or high PBR. And then on the right hand, it might be a little bit harder to see with the way it's projecting, but this is a short axis view at the level of the pap muscles where we'll wanna look at the contour of the interventricular septum and look for any flattening, particularly in systole, and we see a nice normal sort of round donut shape to the, um, the LV, no evidence of septal flattening. Moving forward through our assessment of the echocardiogram, we see that based on TAPSI and the um, tissue Doppler with the S prime, both are normal which are um, different components that we look at in terms of assessing RV function. And then this is the RVOT Doppler um, on pulse wave, and we see a nice normal triangular profile for our patient. And so this was, again, also discussed in a previous talk, but thinking about what is the importance of the RVOT Doppler when we're trying to characterize our patients as to whether they have a high PVR state likely or not based on echocardiogram. So this is data that was looking at whether there was the presence of a notch and then whether it was happening in mid-systole or late systole. And so what the notch is, is that there's forward blood flow um, exiting out of the RVOT, branching out into the smaller blood vessels of the pulmonary arterial vascular space. As it does that, there's a normal wave reflection and a patient who does not have elevated PVR Typically, this wave reflection is small um, in magnitude and it happens late, so we really don't see any interruption in the flow through the RVOT Doppler. Contrast that with a patient who does have elevated pulmonary vascular resistance, blood's gonna be flowing forward and we get this early and larger in magnitude um, reflection, reflected wave that's like um, basically impacting or colliding with the forward flow. This leads to a transient stop in flow or that notch pattern. And then also important to realize is that where we see the notch within that RVOT Doppler profile can also suggest whether the PVR is actually greater than five potentially with a good specificity and positive predictive value or over three if it's a later systolic notch. So basically thinking that the earlier the notch is happening, mid-systole versus late-systole suggesting a higher PBR state. So um, this is a measure of the tricuspid um, regurgitant velocity, and so this patient does have a nice envelope, but again, as was discussed earlier today as well, many of our patients unfortunately do not have good estimations of the tricuspid regurgitant velocity envelope. When you're traditionally estimating PASP, we're plugging this into the modified Bernoulli equation, 4V squared, and then you're adding that to the, the estimated right atrial pressure. And so you can see now, understanding that equation, that any small errors in measurement can lead to over or underestimation. This has been well documented in studies comparing estimated PASP on echo versus invasively confirmed hemodynamics on the order of even 20, 10 or 20 millimeters of mercury. Um, so I think um, it was a great move for the guidelines to move away from the estimated PASP and really focus also just on the TR absolute velocity itself when you're using an echo assessment of whether a patient has pH so you can get rid of that potential to amplify error in measurement. <clears throat> and then what we see here is the mitral inflow and then we see tissue Doppler. And so when we look at that E to E prime ratio, that's a non-invasive way that we can assess um, elevations in left atrial pressure. And so we see um, a value of nine, between nine and 10 for our patient. 
So taking all of this data into account, so we have a patient who started off, you know, presenting as many of our patients do with potential risk factors for a wide variety of, of etiologies of pulmonary hypertension. They had a PE and DVT history, have sleep disordered breathing on CPAP, obesity, hypertension, and then this initial questionable diagnosis of connective tissue disease that seemed to not be accurate. We then have our echo, which shows normal RV size and function, normal right atrial size, no septal flattening, normal RVOT Doppler. So, so far, all of our imaging is suggesting that this patient perhaps does not have a high PBR state, does not actually have significant precapillary disease. What we do want to think about is could they have left-sided heart disease that is leading to their symptoms and perhaps suggesting why they have not improved on sildenafil. So this um, is one risk score that we can use to estimate the likelihood non-invasively of whether a patient has HEF-PEF. And so um, this includes variables such as elevated BMI, whether they need hypertension with multiple medications, hypertension treatment, excuse me, with multiple medications. They do look at the Doppler estimated PASP, and then again, assessment of filling pressure along with age and whether atrial fibrillation is present or absent. Our patient was noted to have a HEF-PEF score of five, suggesting a higher likelihood. But again, with a patient who was especially already put on sildenafil, given this diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, it's important, as always, to confirm what are the actual invasive hemodynamics. We saw that the right atrial pressure was nine. The PA pressure was 18 for a mean A wave with a V wave up to 30. Normal PA sat index and output, and we see here a normal PVR at 1.3. So at this point, we conclude that the patient's diagnosis is in fact HEF-PEF and is not um, someone who we think is going to benefit from sildenafil. So sildenafil is discontinued. She's referred to our HEF-PEF clinic. She's continued on spironolactone, which had already been started by the prior institution. We start her on SGLT2 inhibitor therapy, which we'll hear about more in the next talk about the um, effects that it has in terms of reducing um, heart failure hospitalization for our patients and having some benefits with decongestion. And then also there's a lot of different clinical trials happening in the HEF-PEF space. At that time, she was um, referred for assessment whether she could be included in the step HEF-PEF trial looking at semaglutide um, and HEF-PEF, knowing that the obesity phenotype is a really large driver of HEF-PEF in a lot of our patients. And so take-home points are ECHO is a very powerful tool in terms of assessment of pulmonary hypertension, including patients with HEF-PEF pH. But we want to make sure, again, as was emphasized earlier in this, in this um, conference, that we're really moving beyond just the estimated PASP, looking at a lot of these other markers as highlighted here, and it was introduced in the, you know, the 2022 European guidelines, saying, does this patient really have evidence of significant precapillary disease, or perhaps they have evidence of significant left heart disease. And thinking that, you know, that the hemodynamics that we get should really fit the echo picture. So making sure, are we getting accurate assessments of our left-sided filling pressure is super important um, in our patients, especially with pulmonary hypertension. And then again, right heart cath remains the gold standard, not always needed if someone clearly has, you know, HEF-PEF or HEF-REF, severe MR, um, and you know that the focus is really going to be on treatment of group 2 disease. But if we're unsure our patient has multiple predisposing risk factors based on echo and non-invasive testing alone, we don't know. We must always confirm what their hemodynamic profile is. And then generally speaking, pulmonary vasodilator therapy lacks benefit and may lead to worsening actually in our patients with group 2 disease.
You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.